Welcome to the Weed of Time. Dungeons and Dragons. Ladies, gentlemen, and non-binary pals of all kinds, welcome to the Weed of Time. My name is Deng, and today I'm going to be your host on this very special episode, where I introduce an all-new series of episodes that will be available exclusively to our patrons over at Patreon. This is my 15th take trying to record this intro, so I'm going to go as little off-script as I can. <laughs> Sorry. Um, a little later on, you're going to hear from Shame and Nospo, as well as a special guest. But for now, let me get right down to business, totally solo. First off, we've got to talk about Shy Tan's Lettuce and the Munchies. For the first time ever, I'm recording this completely sober, and let me tell you, it is terrible! I also don't have any munchies at all, so I don't know why I brought any of this up. But, we can now move on to the exciting new details. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about Dankjins and Dragons. This is a hopefully monthly series of episodes coming up in which Shame, Nospo, Mr. Buzzkill, and I will play Astorian Dungeons and Dragons which is our years-long D&D campaign set in a homebrew world that I've been working on since 2015. To start with, I'm going to give some details on the setting of the game. Then I'll let the players give you some background on their characters, and we'll have a little discussion on that. And then I'm going to wrap up the episode with a recap of the most recent plot arc that the gang has completed, so that as listeners, you're going to be caught up on the story and ready to start listening in to the Dankshins and Dragons series as the new content starts popping up. Part 1. The World In early 2015, I reread The Silmarillion. I was just done my third year of university, and I was working in a grocery store. While the book is full of brilliant moments, like all Tolkien is, one thing in particular stuck out to me that time around. After Eru created the world, and after the Einar had shaped it to their liking, there came a moment of conflict between the creator and the Valar. Iru instructed the lesser gods to leave their creation behind, so that the world they had labored so hard over could be given entirely over to the children of Iluvatar, the humans and the elves. Initially incensed at the injustice of being torn from their beautiful creation, the Ainur eventually saw Iru's point of view, and they left to live in the undying lands beyond the sea. And this moment stuck in my head because it raised a burning question I couldn't answer easily. A silly hypothetical that kept me up at night. What would have happened? if the Valar had refused to leave Middle-earth. This question dogged me for days, until finally, after getting off work at 11pm one night, I bought a key lime pie and I went home to my desk, I grabbed my laptop and my notebook, and I started writing. Hours later, the pie was gone completely, but my quest for an answer was not. In fact, I was left with more questions. More questions... and a map. I had begun to craft my own little universe in which a pantheon of deities created a world and then stayed in it. Not content to see their little world overrun by others, these gods and goddesses would remain, ruling their subjects like immortal monarchs living in decadence and tyranny. Their greed, then, would necessarily lead to the oppression of the human inhabitants of the world, right? What was life like for the citizens in this magical slave society, then? What happened in this place, in this world that Tolkien had avoided? 
As you can see, I'd created far more questions for myself than I had answered. I thought about this world all the time. Multiple times a day, I'd have intrusive thoughts butt into my head that would flesh out this universe just a little bit more. Who were these greedy deities? Did they fight with each other? What sort of people lived in the world? What happened to the Iru of my world? Why did he let the Valar of my world have their way? What were the different societies like? What jobs did people hold? What sort of strange creatures could I find in the forests and mountains, and lakes and deserts of this nameless continent that I, have I had dreamt up? Soon, a story began to emerge. A massive story, tying together dozens and dozens of characters. The, uh, tying together dozens and dozens of the characters that I'd been placing in these societies. Eventually, I found myself buying 200-page notebooks so that I could trace the genealogy of the ruling clan of dragons in the frozen wastes of the north, and so I could map out what happened in my world across 35,000 years. Had rereading a childhood favorite turned me into a weirdo wasting my time and money on stupid hypothetical debates I was having about a stupid hypothetical world in my own head? Y yes Did I stop? Never. I decided later that year that I would turn these silly scribblings into a real story. I decided to start writing the beginning of a book. A book that would follow my characters in their fight against the world I placed them in. But, being a good little nerdlet who has read mountains of fantasy, I knew going into this that there was lots of tropes and pitfalls that I disliked in the things I'd read, and I resolved to avoid them. GOD WAS I EVER YOUNG AND STUPID! <sighs> anyway, one of the issues I was and still absolutely am dead set on avoiding is the George Martin Patrick Rothfuss special. Starting something that I can't finish. What I want is to have the vast majority of the story plotted, mapped, written, and edited before publishing the first volume of the story at all. I also want it to have a cohesion and internal consistency that authors like Martin, Rothfuss, Terry Goodkind, and yes, sometimes even Robert Jordan lack. Don't at me for this one. Do you remember the talking fucking Trollocs in the first book? Oh, fuck it. Anyway. Anyway. For the last four and a half years, I've been drawing and redrawing maps, creating languages, sketching characters, developing dialogue, writing prologues, writing scenes, tracing paths, designing cultures and governments, and overall just trying my damnedest to know every possible piece of information about 35,000 years of history in a world that only exists in my own head. This is the magical, horrible, diverse, frustrating, and wonderful world that I call Estora. As a means of helping me write, as well as, I suspect at least, a way of getting us to nerd out together and have fun, my wife and co-host Shame suggested that I set up a Dungeons & Dragons campaign set in Estora. As she and some of our friends gallivanted about and caused trouble, I would be forced to create details that I might not have thought of otherwise. And so, we all set about doing just that. Now, almost three years later, we're starting our second plot arc, and we are really, really excited to share it with all of you, our listeners. To start us off, I want to spend some time discussing the setting, the continent of Astora, its seven kingdoms, and the people that live in them. What you're going to need to know first is that Astorian history is divided into two periods at this point, the Era of Swords and the Era of Sun. The Era of Swords lasted some 10,000 years, and in those days the eight kingdoms of Astora were 
were constantly at war with each other, as the god-emperors of the world fed their own people into the meat grinder of imperialism and industrialization. Now, we're not going to spend much time on this ancient history today, for brevity's sake, but more details can be found in the lore books that I've created for the players, which we're going to put up for our patrons over at Patreon. Eventually, this world fell into an environmental crisis. Thousands and thousands died, and Astora was very nearly destroyed. But there followed a century-long dark age in which life was restructured, with people consuming less, and all the labor that was done in those hundred years was focused on the rebuilding of society along ecologically resilient lines. At the end of those hundred years, the world was very different, but the seven surviving kingdoms were much better for it. Since then, there's been about 400 years which we call the Era of Sun. The world has lived in a sort of peace, as the survivors of the ancient wars lick their wounds and rest amongst their new, safe lives. Some preliminary geography before we talk about these individual kingdoms. You need to know that Astora is an ecologically diverse continent, roughly oblong in shape, like a squash, for example. And it stretches about 6,500 kilometers from northeast to southwest. Um, to visualize that, just kind of imagine the distance from Alaska to Florida, but tilted 90 degrees clockwise. Now then, what I'd like to do today is talk about the seven kingdoms of Astora as they stand during the campaign, about 400 years into the Era of Sun. Um, I'd like to make clear as I start here that I've broken the continent into two categories, the northern kingdoms, which have all largely withdrawn from society, and the southern kingdoms, that have mostly united together in a collective commonwealth. Now that that's been said, we're going to dive right in with the northern kingdom, starting with the northernmost of these, the mysterious frozen wasteland of Skierhelm. A massive kingdom dominating the northernmost quarter of the continent, Skierhelm is predominantly tundra, with some mountain ranges in the most northerly regions. It's connected to the rest of Astora through its southern border, which is covered by the dark and mysterious Last Wood, a deep forest that prevents even the most intrepid explorer wandering into Skierhelm. It is said that Last Wood was raised by the King of Skierhelm at the end of the Era of Swords to prevent any intrusions upon his territory. As a result, it's been many hundreds of years since anyone has entered or exited the frozen land. Just to the south of Last Wood is a massive wasteland of bare rock known as Argoth. In the Era of Swords, it was a kingdom in its own right, known as Aeroth. It was a majestic boreal forest, and uh, it was a majestic boreal forest and mountain range, full of druidic inhabitants ruled over by the benevolent king Menos. A great cataclysm just before the Dark Ages destroyed the kingdom, killing its ruler and citizens. In the Era of the Sun, the Argoth and Last Wood stand as impassable barriers to anyone wishing to enter Skierhelm. The god-king of this kingdom is Raniel, a tall man with long black locks and an angular face. Thought to be the most powerful of the pantheon, Raniel is the god of time, and legend says it's his role to eventually end the world. Reclusive and unknowable, Raniel has not been seen outside of his castle, Land's End, in many, many centuries. Some say that he's asleep, waiting for the right moment to awake and fulfill his apocalyptic destiny. The, the people, rather, of Skierhelm are another mystery. Records of their appearance and culture are old and questionable in the extreme, and so little is known for sure about them. It's assumed that they were far taller than the average human, with paler than average skin, and a higher than average propensity for magic. Their language is speculatively called 
Ancient Scare by scholars, but outside of a few strange runes, there's no historical samples of it. Rumors abound that King Ranael, in his quest for world-ending might, spent centuries making magical creatures with which to wage his war on existence. Many people in Astora have heard the stories of dragons, great winged reptiles that can breathe fire, being bred in the caverns at the edge of the world. But these are more than likely folk tales to scare kids into behaving themselves. Right? Next, we come to the harsh kingdom of Ilgul, which dominates the northwest peninsula of Estora. Primarily comprised of wet marshland, this land experiences harsh winters and mild summers, and its people are hardy and resourceful. The north and east of Ilgul feature a thin mountain range, and to its east is the blasted waste known as Argoth. To the south, it borders Fair, the vast and mystical forest land of the elves. Ilgul is governed, governed in quotes, by the absent, absentee Queen Saren, who dwells, in, who dwells excuse me, in solitude in the misty depths of the swamps. With pale, sickly skin and long dark hair and a legendary temper, Lady Saren abandoned her people to their own free will after a misunderstanding led to her unleashing her might against the kingdom of Eroth in ancient times. Her wrath decimated it entirely. Off of the northwest coast, some sailors from the southern kingdoms have reported seeing a small, densely forested island, and have claimed to hear ghostly screams coming from it. These reports can be easily chalked up to hearsay, as few people have ever even neared that isle, and none have ever attempted to make a landing there. The Golthane, the native people of Ilgul, are short, dark-skinned, and dark-haired. Remarkably nimble and stealthy movers, they were colonized and repressed massively during the Era of Swords and in the modern day they prefer to live a life free of many modern technologies and magics, in small villages, and sometimes in nomadic tribes. They maintain no communication with the rest of the world. Their language is largely unknown, but modern scholars note that it has a tonal nature, and they refer to it as Gallic. Next we come to Fair the deep forest that dominates the center of the continent. In ancient days, it was the seat of power for the bloodthirsty Queen Onwin, who led the Faric people, known by many in the rest of the world as the fairies or the elves. Queen Onwin, at one time or another, attempted to invade every other kingdom of the continent in her unending quest for power and dominion. The geography of Fair is largely unknown, since none have entered under its eaves and returned in many hundreds of years. What is known about Fair is that the terrain is treacherous. A few small mountains stand above the canopy in the southeast, and many old ruined castles are scattered throughout its depths. It's been recorded that Lady Onwen was tall and muscular, with a severe face and an unforgiving attitude. She loved to live a resplendent lifestyle in grand castles that she forced her citizens to construct. Meanwhile, they, her citizens, the Fair, uh, they preferred to live in decentralized, small communities amongst the forest creatures, living in peace with nature around them. Her campaigns against the other kingdoms were legendary, as she turned the natural magical skill of the elves into a nearly unstoppable death machine. At times, her fair accords held the majority of territory in Ilgul, Eroth, Surya, and Elator. Those last two being southern kingdoms we'll get to a little later. Since their ultimate defeat and retreat into the forest before the Dark Ages, uh, 
little has been known about Ferric society. Many of them, though, were prisoners of war, and ended up being integrated into Surian, Elatoric, and Aralfiric societies after their comrades were routed. As a result, there is a Ferric diaspora that makes up about 10% of the population of the southern kingdoms today. We can make broad generalizations about the Ferric people based on studying what remains of the culture in this diaspora and examining their physiology. The average fair is about half the size of a human being, with nearly silver skin, with pointed ears, and light hair. They usually show incredible magical prowess, innate stealth, and speak in a native tongue known as Luath, or Moonspeak, which is also a tonal language written in complicated runes, uh, the reading of which has largely been lost to history. And with that, we can move on into the southern kingdoms. The east of Astora, just south of the Argoth, is home to the verdant valley of Elator, the demands of Queen Alda and her Elathane. Relative to the other six kingdoms, Elator is remarkably small, but don't be fooled by that. This little agricultural superpower produces enough food to feed not only itself, but also the entirety of Surya and Aralfir, with a little bit left over. Massively advanced in agricultural technology, Elator is almost entirely comprised of farmland, but there are a few small cities in which the Elathane are making cultural and artistic advancements. This peaceful realm is bordered, as I said earlier, by Argoth to the north, um, and along that border, the Lady Alda has actually conjured a vast hedge to act as a barrier between the wild Northlands and her kingdom. To the west of Elator, you'll find the Forest of Fair, and in the south, Alda's valley shares borders with both Surya and Aralfir, two of the other southern kingdoms. Queen Alda is notable for being the only monarch in the Era of Swords to launch no campaigns of aggression, and in fact, she mustered her Elethane army just once, in the final battle of the south, when the armies of Elator, Aralfir, and Surya united to push back the Ferric Dominion and the Vanrathane hordes of the Dark Lord Rutsul. Alda has, for the majority of the Era of the Sun, stepped down from the governance of Elator. While she is still nominally the head of state, she has passed most of the duties down to elected citizens, while she takes a more direct hand in laboring as part of the agriculture industry. She lives in a commune with about 50 other farmers and works long days in the sun on their farm. The Elethane are distinguished by their great height, standing head and shoulders above the average human, with light skin and hair, and are often much more muscular than the average human as well. While they are renowned as great warriors because of their build, no Elatoric army has marched in many hundreds of years, as these peaceful people live in a society where all their needs are met with minimal labor, and crime has ended up diminishing with the increasing quality of life. They speak a native language called Elethane, but most citizens also speak the common tongue of the Union of Kingdoms, that being Elator, Surya, and Aralfir. And this is actually a good time to make a quick note on the Union of Kingdoms. At the end of the Era of Swords, when the battered kingdoms of Elator, Surya, and Aralfir united their armies to defeat the invaders, the three realms decided to unite economically as well. While they are all independent states with their own native tongues and ethnicities to this day, citizens enjoy free trade and free movement within all three kingdoms, with a common language independent of their native tongues, and as a result, the three share many elements of culture, and each kingdom has a mixed citizenry of the different ethnic groups. Many have speculated that the three will someday amalgamate into one giant kingdom, but that doesn't seem to be on the agenda anytime soon.
On the southeast coast of Astora sits the kingdom of Aerolfir. A federalist kingdom, it is comprised of six provinces, each overseen by a duke or duchess. These provincial duchies are generally self-governing, especially in peacetime, but Queen Adara oversees a federal government which holds ultimate authority over them. Aerolfir is bordered to the north by Elator, to the west by Surya, and to the south by Vanrathul. To the east, in between the peninsulas of Khyber and Tiber, there is a large archipelago which historically belonged to Aerofir, but has for the past 60 years been under the control of a band of ethnocentric separatists that claimed the islands and named them the Nakrani Empire. They defend this territory with a large navy and have been very disruptive to Union trade shipments. In the northern duchies, Aerofir has a fairly moderate climate, with plentiful arable land and mild winters. In the southernmost provinces, the climate is much warmer, and a small mountain range on the east coast is surrounded by near-desert terrain. The cities are large and vibrant, but much of the population lives in rural communities in the countryside as well. Queen Adara, the monarch of the country, is notoriously selfish, using her power and prestige to lead a lavish and hedonistic ex existence that the vast majority of her population, including even many, many members of the state apparatus, do not share does not share, rather. She is famous for her liberal consumption of alcohol and other mind-altering substances, for her wild and deviant sexual appetites, and for hosting legendary parties that last weeks at a time. Now that the Union has been at peace for some centuries, she has relaxed her hold on the provinces greatly, and hasn't taken an active hand in governance in many years. The Aerolthane people are usually of average height and build, with dark skin and hair. Intermarriage between the kingdoms in the Union has created a large, mixed-race population, however, and skin tone is increasingly becoming a metric by which to measure social class. I'm sure this is going to end well for everybody, right? Like in the other kingdoms of the Union, the Aerolthane have their own native tongue, Aerolfiric, but they largely also speak the common tongue. The Necrani people, however, have renounced the common tongue and speak only Aerolfiric. The economy of Aerolfir is diverse, with a range of peasants, artisans, and intellectuals all contributing to a robust commercial sector. That being said, among the lower classes, the most common vocation is to be found in the industrial fisheries that are so important to Aerolthane life and culture. Now, if you've happened to hear any of those noises in the background, that was my cat deciding that she needed to attack a chair, and my dog freaking out about it. So, excuse me. The kingdom in which the majority of our plot is set is Surya. Um, set in the southerly portion of, the, of central Estora, this kingdom is mainly, uh, it's mainly comprised of the land between the Guardian Forest on its eastern edge and the Skyfang Mountains on its western edge. To the south it borders the deserts of Vanrathul, to the east of it lie Elator and Aerofir, and off to the west are the unclaimed territories we'll discuss in a minute. To the north there's the Forest of Fair. Its capital is the colossal Ivory City, with its legendary stone walls and towering citadel which houses the greatest library in history. The Skyfang Mountains are also the home of the Syrian Academy, a castle deep in their most remote reaches, the center for all magical education and scholarship in the Union. King Eredrel is the head of state, and is second only in might amongst the pantheon to Raniel. Since the end of the Era of Swords, Eredrel has stepped down from most of his duties, but retains nominal leadership of the land. 
While he has remained alone in his private wing of the Citadel for a few centuries, the governance of Surya has fallen to a steward and ruling council who are elected by regional officials throughout the kingdom. Rorig, the current steward of Surya, is known as a largely good leader, if a little bit weak in the tougher matters. What King Eredril has been doing in his solitude is the matter of much speculation, but given that his private wing houses his own arcane library and study, most people assume that he's hard at work on some sort of magical mystery project. On the western edge of the Skyfangs, a valley in the mountains has claimed independence from Surya. Saldor, the name of this settlement, is a mineral-rich area, and it's comprised of a few hundred people that survive on the profits made from mining in those mountains and exporting the precious materials. They have also shown great alchemical skill, developing explosive weaponry that has allowed them to dictate the terms of their independence to Surya, the most powerful kingdom on the continent. West of the Skyfangs is a large tract of land on the west coast uh, known as the Disputed Lands. Surya, Saldor, Fair, and Vanruthul have all tried at some point to lay claim to these disputed lands, but no victor has ever actually held sovereignty there, and at this point the lands have been largely abandoned. Travelers there know it as a wild place without settlements, and the home of many small bands of brigands and lowlives. The eastern side of Surya is dominated by the massive woodland known as the Guardian Forest. Once the center of Faric occupation, the forest is still littered with elven ruins, but got its name when the entire population of Surya was forced to hide under its eaves to avoid death at the hands of the invasive armies from Vanruthul. These days, the forest is home only to creatures both magical and mundane, but the resources are carefully and zealously protected by the Guardian Forest Conservation Authority, a band of rangers that were formed during the Dark Ages to preserve the forest against ecological collapse. The people of Surya are the Orathane, a tall race of light-skinned and generally dark-haired people. Many of them live in mining or farming settlements throughout the countryside, but much of the population lives in large cities where fine craftspeople and intellectuals do the majority of the cultural and artistic work of the entire Union. Ivory City, for example, employs over 2,000 scholars in its royal library, where they all work on groundbreaking projects in history, linguistics, sociology, anthropology, and literature. Additionally, artists from across the Union flock to Syria's cities for the burgeoning visual art and music communities. As well as speaking the common tongue, the average Surya is also fluent in Orathane. Being the closest kingdom to both Fair and Vanruthul, its ancient enemies, Surya boasts the largest army in the Union, which includes 250,000 warriors on average, as well as a military police detachment in charge of keeping the law alongside guards stationed in each settlement throughout the kingdom. The final kingdom in the Era of Sun is Vanruthul, a near-empty desert that dominates the southern reaches of the continent. The vast majority of this realm is barren sand and dirt, a heartbreaking reminder of the barbaric tactics that were used during the Era of Swords. Once a lush, tropical jungle, centuries of warfare turned Vanruthul into this tragic wasteland. The only real feature of its geography is a line of basalt columns and cliffs strung out near its southern coast, known as the Black Heights. Behind this semi-mountainous natural barrier can be found a great pit, miles across and many more miles deep, dug thousands of years ago by the people of the land in order to gain access to the abundant natural resources hidden far below. The king of Vanruthul was once known as Yatsal, which roughly means, in an old form of the common tongue, mighty warrior. 
tall, powerful, and handsome, he was the golden boy of the Pantheon from the moment of creation. But, during the Era of Swords, desperate for a more powerful army, Lord Yatsal turned on his own people, and with foul magic transformed them from a human race into a monstrous hybrid of human and spider. In the end, he turned that same magic on himself, and the once majestic king became a ten-foot hulking giant, a colossal centaur, but instead of the horse you'd expect underneath, it was the eight hairy legs of a tarantula. His horrific crime caused him to be renamed by the other kings and queens of Astora. Mighty Warrior became Urtsul, which functionally means evil beast, but is more often translated as something closer to Dark Lord. The Vanruthane, the monstrous inhabitants of Vanruthul, are, as stated, large sp spider centaurs, for lack of a better word. They stand roughly seven feet tall, and different variations of them have been noted. Some have two arms, uh, two human arms, rather, some with up to four human arms. Some have fangs, some have tusks, and some even have scorpion-like tails that come out from the back of their arachnid's thorax. In every instance, they're absolutely terrifying to behold, and they're nearly impossible to overcome. Their language, known simply in the Union Kingdoms as Vanruthane, just like the people, has no written form, but the phonetics of its verbal form are extremely harsh, and it seems that the language is almost entirely comprised of hard consonant sounds. Nothing whatsoever is known about Vanruthane society today. At the end of the Era of Swords, every last one of them were harried back south of the Black Heights to where Urtsul has his great fortress Uruthul. There are no known cities or towns in the kingdom, and it's been speculated that the spider people live in nests built into the side of the ancient mine. That being said, no contact has been made with the king or citizens of this region since the Dark Ages. Part 2. The Characters For our next segment, I thought it would be cool to have the players come in and talk about their characters, and give a little background on where they come from and who they are. I'll have the players give a scripted statement of their background first, and then I think I'll try and open it up to a little discussion on how they play their character, some of their favorite moments, that sort of thing. Now, first up, we're going to toss it over to Nospo, who will talk about her mysterious druid, Videlis. Hi everyone, it's Nospo, and yes, I am reading... Oh my god! And yes, I am reading as slowly <laughs> as ever! Thanks for asking! And anyways, my character is a neutral good druid named Videlis. Videlis was raised by a farming couple in the kingdom of Elator and never worried about why she looked so much different than the people around her. Quickly growing far taller than her peers, with dark brown hair in place of the usual Elatoric blonde, she fit in culturally, and for a long time neither she nor those around her ever questioned why she didn't fit in physically. No one commented on her skill with the draft animals about the farm, no one commented on how, uh, how quick a study in magic she was, no one cared that she was different. But one day, near the end of her education, Videlis happened upon a strange picture in a book on ancient civilizations. The picture claimed to show the physical likeness of one of the long extinct Arathane. <laughs> the long extinct Arathane, the giant wild folk of Aeroth, before the cataclysm that obliterated their society. The picture also bore a striking resemblance to a young Videlis herself. Suddenly perceiving herself as the other, she confronted her parents who admitted admitted to not being her biological parents at all. They told her how, one night, years before, they, heard a strange, they had heard strange cries coming from outside the farmhouse, and upon investigating them, found a, baby left in, found a crying baby left swaddled on their doorstep. They raised this baby as their own, 
seeing every day how radically unlike them she was, but they had no further details. Videlis, suddenly confused as to her identity and destiny, left home to explore the world, to uncover the secrets of her birth, and to find out the truth behind what happened to the people that once looked like her. Okay, thank you very much, Videlis. And I'm going to just, like, preemptively thank all of the people talking about their characters here because I've given them no time to read over these really poorly written scripts. You really should have watched me, like, jump to, like, where Day has written out words for me that I don't know how to super pronounce yet. Yeah, because none of them have been given pronunciation guides on all these fucked up words you've been hearing for the last half hour. Anyway, thank you for that little overview, Nospo. And let's just move into some questions quickly about... Um, about you playing your character, Sweet. okay? So, what has been your favorite moment so far while playing Videlis? Do they know yet? Have you like gone over the campaigns yet? I haven't gone over the campaigns yet. I'm going to do that later in the episode. Okay. So, anything you talk about, they, our listeners will get. You'll later know on. the context of this more so later. But Videlis is able to transform into animals, but only animals she has seen before, which is disappointing because she can't turn into a giraffe, which is my personal favorite animal. But anyway. <laughs> Um, we were being, oh my goodness, I don't remember the context of it very much. We were being attacked, oh I remember now, we were being attacked, and I felt the best way, um, to control the situation was to turn into this kind of like mini dragon yeah, called yeah, a wyvern. Yeah, it's a wyvern. It's got no front legs, just wings in place of it. Anyway, sorry, continue. And it was awesome, and I kept trying to do really cool things, like, Throwing a fireball and bashing it with my tail, but I was rolling like fucking shit. It was terrible. Um, we eventually made it through. I did rip off one of the, um, what are they called? The Van Rathane. The Van Rathane's heads and like threw it off in the distance <laughs> and like had the best roll of my life. I'll never get over it. That's probably my favorite part. <laughs> it was actually really great because she rolled super well to turn into this wyvern and she suddenly had like a hundred points of health. But then she couldn't roll well enough to attack, so she was just tanking damage and then not doing anything. It was great. Okay, so now, what has been your least favorite moment while playing Videlis? Okay, Videlis is a person. Is a creature? Person? A person. Person. Um, that is very calculated. And I find I personally can be a little reactionary. Which I'm working on because that's not a great quality to have. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, very cool and calculated. Um, which is an exercise of myself sitting there as Jang is telling me the worst shit ever of us being arrested. And I'm like, mm-hmm, you want to arrest us for killing some of the disgusting Vanrathane that were outside? <laughs> yep, arrest us. See what happens. Love it. Yeah, and But you just have to sit there and like yeah, accept what's going on. It. I gotta have to like observe everything I can to like put it back in the banks to use it for later. Like you said this. <laughs> Videlis doesn't do anything. She just keeps the receipts. I do. <laughs> All right. So moving on to the next question, we're, we're going to talk on a personal level right now. What are some, if any, things that you share in common with Videlis? Um, Videlis is a history nut through and through. <laughs> And I'm also, I'm not as big as a history nut over here as Dang is. Dang obviously does a lot more reading on history than I do. Um, but I do have a minor in history, so there's that, I guess. <laughs> I guess! <laughs> I guess! Um, but yeah, there was actually, going back to one of my favorite things, uh, Dang over here wrote us a wonderful oh, history fuck. book 
about religion and what is the name of it's 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 uh religion and sorcery and continental astora <laughs> and he just put the same i think it was Randy for both sunday and saturday yeah, and i've never gotten over it because i renamed the days of the week but i just i fucking mixed them up and skipped one of the names and just reused another one she's never let it go i love it i went back through and i like scribbled it out and rewrote it <laughs> I love, it's like come up in casual conversation of like I've noticed that in this volume of the book you know, like, she has to talk to it about every like talk about it to every NPC we meet it's fucking horrible <laughs> remind me of my great shame go ahead okay so moving on on the same personal level what are some per, uh, what are some differences between you and Videlis? Um, I think obviously physical characteristics but that's not unsurprising wait you on... mean you're not six and a half feet tall and ripped <laughs> Surprise! Fuck. <laughs> no, instead I'm like a plucky five something and <laughs> wait a number that I don't even know because <laughs> scales are fucking dumb. <laughs> scales are evil. Shit, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> fuck. How are we different? We're different in many different ways. Um, obviously I don't do magic. Shit, I keep doing this. Personality-wise, we're not even remotely high. I know, it's so weird to be doing this sober, right? But you you were talking before about how um, Videlis is a little more like patient and calculated yeah. and passive, whereas you're a little more reactionary. <laughs> but also, sometimes I can be passive and sit hmm. back and let other people do the work, a.k.a. all of every day of teacher's college. <laughs> every fucking day. All right, let, let's move on from that question then. We'll get to the last two questions, which are the fun ones, okay? Does Videlis fuck? Dang and I were talking about this before we started recording. And the answer has to be no, but it could also be yes. <laughs> because as Dang so adequately put it, Videlis exclusively pegs men only because that's the only way it works. <laughs> Just because of the size discrepancies between her and everyone else, it's the only thing she can do. She can bend people over and rail them with a fake dick, but she... Like... <laughs> That's about it. <laughs> but Kjord's gonna be in for a surprise. <laughs> Fuck. Man, I'm, I'm really excited for Kjord's little mock interview here because I guarantee he's gonna try and say, yeah, my character fucks. I bet he's pretty good at it. And I'm just gonna have to say, no, no. <laughs> As the person in charge of what's canon, the answers are no and no. <laughs> he does not fuck and no, he's not good at it. Anyway, Videlis, let's get back to... Uh, Yes, there's a potential for Videlis fucking. Is she any good at fucking? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that it's happened. Yeah. And that they were left very intimidated very frightened. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know it's really hard to come when you're scared? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. Okay. Um, last question. Would Videlis, given the chance, smoke pot? Every fucking day. (laughs) (laughs) All day. There you go, there's another similarity then. Oh, sweet, yeah. We're both stoners, sweet. (laughs) Hell yeah. Um, I'm of the opinion that Videlis would just be on every possible mind-altering substance in existence. Oh, all the time. Videlis would be, like, regularly doing LSD to, like, introspect and learn more about herself. Salvia, yes. (laughs) 
Cocaine? Probably. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah. No. I think out of all the characters, Videlis would probably be the biggest junkie. Well, Videlis has got that all that history knowledge, so they're like, they're like, I'm not fucking stupid. I know what the consequences of these hardcore fucking drugs are, and I don't care because I want to seek a higher power and a higher knowledge. <laughs> I'm basically doing a Doctor Faustus, but with drugs. <laughs> I know that doing narcotics can kill me, but I think if I do enough heroin, I might see God. So I've got to try. <laughs> that just like i'll unlock the secrets of the universe somehow by being obliterated i don't know if i've mentioned this before but um mr buzzkill and i went to university with a guy well lived with a guy in university who uh did a lot of drugs and he was real weird he was a psychology major he was fucked that's whoa that opens a lot of doors that scare me uh uh-huh and he uh he, he the first day i met this guy he told me the first time I tried salvia, it took me down into myself and showed me the lights at the bottom of creation, and they told me, you're not supposed to be here yet. You're not ready. And that's where I got my worldview. That's how he introduced <laughs> himself to me. That's disgusting. The fuck. You ever just so nervous first year university that you need to freak everyone the fuck out as an introduction? <laughs> oh, anyway, that's Fidelis. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that wraps up our section on Videlis. Um, and yeah, that's all I got to say there. So thank you very much for coming on, Nospo. My pleasure. Um, See y'all later when I'm high. <laughs> See y'all later at a better time. <laughs> Although are we recording these high or the D&D sessions other than Mr. Buzzkill? I think we're going to... Shame and I have talked about this. We're either going to do it sober like we normally do, mm-hmm. or... We're going to have, like, a lottery. One of us is going to be high. Oh, no. (laughs) I feel like that could be fun. Every time a different person is high. Eventually, it comes back to me as the DM, and I'm just, like, incapable of following the plot. We manipulate the shit out of that, let me tell you. (laughs) Fuck. Yeah, that's how Cletus dies. That's what happens. (laughs) Cletus. Oh boy, then I straight up murdered. <laughs> Sorry, listeners, you'll get that story later. <laughs> Alright. Bye for now, no spoilers. Bye. Alright, and now we're back with Shame, who's here to talk with us about her ferric rogue Lamora. Just a quick, uh, quick side note before we get into that. As we're recording this, we do have Mr. Buzzkill, and we do have Nospo in the background. Um, so if you hear anything, like, untoward going on in the background, They're just... definitely fucking. Just try and ignore it, preferably. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so, like I said, we will now toss it over to Shame with her ferric rogue, Lamora. Alright. Hi, everyone. I'm Shame. And keep in mind that my husband wrote this script. I'm as pretty and perfect as ever. Thanks for asking. <laughs> and my character is a chaotic, good rogue named Lamora. She's one of the Ferric people, a short, pale race from the dark for- uh, forest of Fair. Lamora was adopted as a baby by a family in the Ferric diaspora living in western Syria, just on the edge of the disputed lands. Her adoptive parents were kind and gentle folk, craftspeople, who loved her dearly, but her unknown origins left her with a desire to learn and explore in the vast wide world. Wild world. In addition, as a woman in ethnic ethnic minority and a little person. I'm very short. Um, 
both in real life and in this. Uh, did I lost my place. In a society dominated by people much different than her, she grew up very sensitive to issues of prejudice, discrimination, and oppression. At every opportunity, she would work on strengthening herself physically, sharpening her mind, and learning new and useful skills. When your day-to-day -day life is run by people with interests that diverge radically from your own, you quickly learn the value of any weapon you can possibly arm yourself with. Now in her adulthood, Lamar has left home to dedicate her life to helping the underprivileged and oppressed in any way that she can. She wanders the Syrian countryside, disappearing abusive spouses, shaking down cruel landlords, solidarity forever, and doing her level best to understand and help with the struggles of the people with whom she shares the world. All right, thank you very much, Shame. Now we'll get onto those same six discussion questions we had with Nospo. <clears throat> Let's jump right in. What has been your favorite moment while playing Lamora? My absolute favorite moment while playing with Lamora was when I did acrobatics. Dang had like this chessboard thing set up and if you stepped on the wrong The thing, wrong floor tiles. You would basically die. So instead of being careful, I have like insane stats for all of my agility and Dexterity. Strength. And... Uh, not strength. Um, yeah, dexterity and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, my strength's decent, though. Yeah, it's, it's pretty just, good now. I'm just small. Um, so I instead did front handspring, so yeah. it. Yeah, that, that was cool. I enjoyed that. She just did a chain of them across, like, 50 feet of <laughs> rigged and booby-trapped tiles that would have killed her. And she just happened to roll well enough to do it flawlessly. Yeah. Um, it was good. It was really good. Dang's favorite moment is when I shot a, uh tripwire with an arrow from like 50 feet away or whatever yeah you were really far away and you shot a tripwire triggering a trap like in it it was so cool all right now I'm what <laughs> what has been your least favorite moment while playing lamar when i like almost died in the first episode and because you were teaching us how to play your character i had to come save me oh yeah we we were in a dungeon. You'll hear about some of this later. We were in a dungeon facing off against like a non-corporeal shadow demon. For and, the first one. Yeah, and, and she, well, it had no HP. That was the thing. Yeah. Cool concept. Easy boss, theoretically. Mm. But, but <laughs> unless it, you're unlucky. Yeah, yeah. She just happened to roll really badly, and it just like flung it her across the room. It wasn't even that I rolled badly. You got a nat twenty. Right. When you rolled for it. It wasn't anything I did. Right. I roll really well consistently. Right, but but the I am the backbone of this team as far as good rolls. But the boss, fucking rolled a nat twenty. I forgot about that. Yeah, it was rough. All right, next question. On a personal level, what are some, if any, things that you have in common with Lamora? Well, I, I am small and a woman, and angry. And angry. I'm very angry about a lot of things, and I'm very focused on social justice. Especially as a teacher, I'm focused on social justice of my students. As you might tell, we're not high right now, so I'm actually eloquent. Oh, yeah. No, I, I've I've said it multiple okay. times throughout the episode. Well, <laughs> fuck. All right. But I'm very focused on social justice and equality in a variety of lenses and frameworks including gender race ability um class so, yeah class all that sort of stuff mm. sexuality yes yes Th that's there's the big one we missed one. that's that's like top of the fucking list because i work with gsas okay so let's uh let's move on then mm. what are some personal differences between you and lamora if any well lamora's buff <laughs> 
Like, Lavoris can do things and has the willpower to work out. And the most that I can do is go to some team practices and half-ass those. Fair enough. And run during the summer when I don't work. I'm so bad at working out when I'm not, or when I'm working. It's it's terrible. All right. So next, the good questions now. Yes. Does your character fuck? And Absolutely, if... but only women. Fair enough. So follow-up question: Is she any good at it? Absolutely. You think so? Yes. Okay. Fair enough. I, I also think she's like she's a top. She's absolutely top. She ain't no pillow princess. She's aggressive. That's an opinion. I am not. We had we had a good conversation about Videlis and fucking. Just because she's so big. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alright. Final question. Would Lamora smoke pot? I'm of two minds on this, because I think Lamora is cool, and I think she would smoke pot. She wouldn't have any qualms about it, mm-hmm. but I don't think Lamora would be willing to let her guard down for that long. That's, yeah. Which is my main issue here. I think Lamora needs to be prepared for any eventuality at all times, and if she's not, she's mm-hmm. going to freak out about it. Yeah, I feel like she's kind of straight edge, at least a little bit. Yeah. Straight edge, not because she cares about being straight edge, but just because she is unwilling to not be prepared. She's got to be vigilant. She's got to be vigilant, because what if she gets high, and then she doesn't have hand-eye coordination anymore, and some big dude decides that he wants to assault her, and she can't protect herself, you know? She's too aware of the risks. She is. She be. That's probably a yeah, I think you're probably right on that. Alright, so that's the end of that. Um, so next up, we're actually going to introduce a very special guest. Thank you for coming on, Shane. Uh, Toodaloo. <laughs> Toodaloo. <laughs> Alright, so if we could please have Mr. Buzzkill come over and grab a seat. Our very special guest, folks, for the evening. Uh, Mr. Buzzkill. For the first time ever, and it's only because this is the sober episode... <sighs> I, 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 I'm of like many mindsets on how I feel about this but anyway welcome Mr. Buzzkill <laughs> so um, the little intro I wrote for you here finally we will hear for the first time ever from the controversial legendary stinky sleepy cryptid himself Mr. Buzzkill as he introduces his aerophoric fighter Kiorid take it away sir Hi listeners, my name is Mr. Buzzkill, and yes, unfortunately for all of us, this is my actual voice. <laughs> my character is a lawful good fighter from Aerophir, and his name is Kiorid. He was born in the, the middle child of an innkeeper and her fisherman husband. He grew up secure in the knowledge that he would one day inherit the family inn, along with his siblings, to help run it. He could labor with his family to support his family, but as he grew older, taller, stronger, he saw people from all walks of life come through the inn and learn that other people's lives were often much less secure and much less safe. His conscience didn't let him live long knowing that he was happy and healthy while others weren't. While his, with his parents' blessing, he soon left home to wander the world as a jack-of-all-trades, getting work where he could find it, and looking at all times for ways in which he could work for the collective good of society. 
At times he helped run a volunteer medical outpost, fought fires in people's homes, shook down corrupt moneylenders, and distributed free food to the needy and the homeless. Yeah, yeah, we get it. He's just the greatest person ever. Jesus fucking Christ. You wrote the script. <laughs> I did not write this. Yeah, I wrote the script. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's move right ahead into the discussion questions for Kiorid. Um, Mr. Buzzkill, what has been your favorite moment while playing Kiorid? The different ways I try and get around what you want us to do. <laughs> Just as a blanket answer, every time you fuck with me. You want to open up. 5317. Wow. You're not even high. <laughs> All right. You want Shane to open all the locks with her pickpocketing skills? And I will break the locks with my shield. And you will fail <laughs> most of the time. Yeah. And get one good one. I succeeded most of the time, except for when I gave myself a bloody nose and then made the bear think it was on purpose to make it less scared. So what you need to know as listeners is that Mr. Buzzkill can't roll to save his fucking life, except when it's something that doesn't matter. He, he'll, he'll, like, try and wink at somebody in the game, and I'll say, I'll, I'll, make, I'll make him roll for it, and he'll get a nat 20 on that, but, but he can't roll anything else. My charisma, while it's a negative five base stat, <laughs> I always roll nat 20s, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. He's a fighter that can't roll any combat skills ever. Okay, so anyway, uh, next, what has been your least favorite moment playing Kiorid? My inability to help people because I can't roll for charisma <laughs> a lot of the times when it's helpful. Okay, that's a good answer. And on a personal level, what are some, if any, things you have in common with Kiorid? Oh, I, I like helping people, and I, I like to go out and do the things that he has done, but that's not quite possible in a lot of times. And you also can't roll to save your life. <laughs> Every time you try and do something helpful, it's just like... Bash your face against a wall. <laughs> Alright, okay, so same question now. Uh, on a personal level... But this time, personal differences. What's different between you and Kiorid? More confrontational. He is. He will, <laughs> fight. he will punch them in the face because they're being idiots. Thanks, Master Yoda. That was a nice way to phrase that. But no, that's legit. He, he is much more confrontational than you. He's not very confrontational, though. <laughs> yes, but like... This Mr. Buzzkill's just... Just so not confrontational. Someone once stole Mr. Buzzkill's phone on the bus in plain view of him. And Mr. Buzzkill tried to confront him. And the guy said, no, I didn't steal your phone. And Mr. Buzzkill said, okay, have a nice day and left. <laughs> That's not quite how the story went, but it's about how the story went. <laughs> to be fair, we're very proud of Mr. Buzzkill for doing that much. <laughs> yeah, we are. We're very proud that he even that made the more Okay. That's um, true. Now the fun questions. Does your character fuck? And if yes, are they any good at it? Yes, they do. Not very well, but they try. <laughs> okay, that's a they half try. Oh! Um, what, I will... What's the religion of my area again? Well, you essentially just worship your monarch. 
as as most ethnic groups do, they they worship the monarch of their home nation. Yeah, but my whole nation is very. Oh yeah, it's the hedonism religion, the goddess of pleasure. Oh fuck, that's true. I put forward the thesis that you still fucking suck at it, though. <laughs> I, I, Kiora doesn't stick it in the wrong hole. Kiora tries to jam it up the taint, and after about ten seconds, is like, "Is it in yet?" That, that's that's. I'm the DM. I decide what's canon, and I think that's canon. <laughs> okay, final question: Would your character smoke pot? Probably. He grew up in an inn. He knows what's like. What life's like. <laughs> I mean, not bad. Still lives at home. Or still lived at home. So, like... He lives... He works at an inn and his family runs an inn. What do you expect from him? And he lives in the Pleasure Province. Oh, he does. He lives in the Orgy Province. Fuck. Do you know where... Do you know when people come to the inn what they look for? Brothels are just every in there. <laughs> Jokes on us. It's not an inn. It's it's a brothel slash opium den. With anvils. With oh my god. <laughs> anvils. We are not doing anvils. the anvil bit in this fucking episode. And cut. Yeah, and cut. Okay. Anyway, thank you very much, Mr. Buzzkill, for coming on. Now, if you ever decide you want to smoke weed, you can come on the real show. But for now, you can fuck off. And with that thunderous clang, uh, that wraps up our character section. Part three, the story so far. And if I can avoid it, I'll make sure that the credit song isn't Carry On My Wayward Son. To wrap up this introduction to Estora and our new series, I'd like to talk about what our intrepid social justice bastards have been up to throughout our most recent plot arc, which we finished back in October. That story begins when four restless wanderers happened to meet at an inn. It was in the mining and farming settlement of Korholt, at the feet of the mountains in southwestern Syria. There was Lamora, Videlis, and Kiorid, as well as a strange old man with long white hair and a beard, dressed in a tattered red robe. The man called himself Malamus, but he would later gain the nickname Red Tornado. The four started talking and soon realized that in large part they were working in common cause, to help the underprivileged. They decided, for the time being, to work together, traveling the countryside and assisting the dispossessed masses. They began their work right in Korholt, after discovering that dozens of the village citizens had mysteriously disappeared. The search for the missing townsfolk led the party to a secret cave network deep in the Syrian forest inhabited by a deranged cult that worshipped a demon of shadow that craved human flesh. The party killed the cultists and banished the demon, and thus saved the people of Korhold. Their heroic actions garnered the attention of Surya's steward, Rorig, who summoned them to the capital, Ivory City, to be knighted and made treasured parts of Surya's military. Malamis had other plans, however, and parted ways with our social justice vigilantes, rather than be beholden to the Syrian crown. The party left Korholt for Ivory City, but not before killing an innkeeper they, dis they suspected of murder. If you remember that bit where a Nospo talked about killing a fucker named Cletus, that's... that's that joke. <clears throat> Along the way to Ivory City, they discovered an ancient fair ruin in Syria's Guardian Forest, and found a magic fountain in there that granted them special powers and exercised Videlis of a lingering curse she'd picked up in the cultist's cave. 
Later, they saved an innkeeper and his family from a bandit clan led by an evil mage. Nosebull rolled so well in this final boss fight that she managed to intimidate an eight-foot-tall outlaw with just her voice. I'd been leading up to that boss fight for four and a half fucking hours. Anyway. They then came upon the village of Gellin's Ford, a farming community held under the thumb of an evil wizard. The party managed to kill the wizard, but in the process they set a, a forest fire that burned the entire village to the ground. Now shackled with 30 homeless refugees, the party continued their journey north to the capital. On their way, they rescued a river sprite, one of the Yasira people, some woodland creatures, and a wyvern from a renegade group of corrupt military officers known as the Judicators. In doing so, however, they discovered that these high-ranking warriors were working in conspiracy with the vile spider people of the south, the Vanrathane. In saving the myriad creatures from the Judicators, the party and their convoy of villagers angered a troop of three Vanrathane. The monstrous beasts proceeded to chase them savagely for two straight days, right to the gates of Ivory City itself. With what felt like the whole city watching from the, uh, excuse me, with what felt like the whole city watching from the walls, the party finally killed the three Van, Van Rathane, just a stone's throw away from the gates, and they were allowed entry at last. Delivering their human charges to safety in the kingdom's biggest settlement, the party was then arrested by a squad of Syrian soldiers led by the Council of Lords and the steward Rorig. The reputation of the party had preceded our weathered warriors, and they were openly charged with the murder of a Korhold innkeeper, the destruction of an entire village, endangering the kingdom's most precious resource, the Guardian Forest, and the murder of Syrian military officers. The fact that they had led a group of invaders directly to the city gates didn't much help the situation either. And that's where our previous story ended, with our three heroes rotting in the Ivory City dungeon, awaiting trial for the crime of aiding the poor and helpless. And that's the story so far, listeners. You're caught up with our party and ready to start listening to the story as it continues to unravel. And that will also do it for this teaser episode of Dankjins and Dragons. Thanks so much to everyone who listened this far. We'll be back with more of our regular content soon, but I wanted to get this little bonus out to give you all, all you lovely listeners, a little taste of the bonus content that we put out exclusively for our patrons over on Patreon. If you liked what you heard today and or are interested in, interested in supporting us, please head over to patreon.com slash theweedoftime, where we have all sorts of goodies, including access to show notes, access to the scores for our intro music, written by yours truly, the Dankjins and Dragons series, lore books and maps for Astora, as well as bonus episodes where we talk about non-Wheel of Time subjects. Patrons at higher donation tiers will also be able to vote on episode topics for those bonus episodes. You can follow us on Twitter to get updates on new content, to join the conversation, and to get some behind-the-scenes photos, but most importantly, to get my brilliant high takes. The podcast can be found at The Weed of Time. I can be found at at Dangus underscore... Uh, that's a hard one to say. Why the fuck did I do that? I can be found at Dangus underscore con underscore. Shame can be found at Shame of Tarvalon. Nospo can be found at W-O-T, no spoilers. And Mr. Buzzkill can't be found on any social media because he's a fucking buzzkill. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, remember, the weed weaves as the weed wills. Bye! Bye.